Let's open our Bibles to the book of Isaiah, the 28th chapter. Isaiah chapter 28. In this 28th chapter, we find God is warning Jerusalem. The 29th chapter will take on a different theme and another aspect. But you might say this title is the whole chapter. And we find that in the first verse it says, Woe to the crown pride, the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which are on the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine. Ephraim here, the chief tribe of the northern kingdom of Israel, the capital of which was Samaria. And you know, Isaiah, like all devout Jews, loved the holy city, the city of David, the place of God's dwelling. You read that in Psalm 122 and 137, that was the place of God's dwelling. But he saw the storm clouds gathering over the city and announced that trouble was coming. And it was time for them to turn to God in repentance. And he begins his message by announcing God's judgment on Ephraim. And uh, we know for a fact that their neighbors would fall, but it should serve as a warning to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. If Assyria uh, conquered Samaria, then Judah was next on the list. Sometimes what God does in one section of the country might be a warning and an eye-opener to the rest of us. The northern kingdom was proud of its capital city, Samaria, that set like a beautiful crown. We read that in verse 1. Set like a beautiful crown or wreath at the head of the fruitful valley. But their arrogance was detestable to God. For they thought their fortress city was impregnable. Sometimes we think we're too strong. We think nothing will go wrong. But we always need God's power and strength. Samaria reigned in luxury and pleasure and had no fear of her crimes. And God was appalled by her drunkenness. You know, to the Jews, wine was a gift from God and a source of joy. You find it in Psalm 104, verse 15. And the law did not demand total abstinence, but it certainly did warn against drunkenness. And it had warning after warning against drunkenness. Amos denounced their luxurious idolatries and indulgences in in both uh, Judah and Samaria. And Isaiah also thundered against such godless living. In Isaiah chapter 5, we already have read about uh, what God spoke about their way of doing. It says in Isaiah 5, and he's speaking to the nation of Israel and Judah, and he says in verse 11, Woe to them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night, till wine inflame them. And they go on. And the harp and the vial, the tabret and the pipe and the wine are in their feasts. In other words, they just live lives of festivity and drunkenness and and, uh, feasting. But they regard not the work of the Lord, neither consider the operation of his hands. Then on down verse 20 of the fifth chapter, he says, Woe to them that call evil good and good evil. You know, that's the way people do. They call, it says that put light, the darkness for light and light for darkness. You ever heard of people that don't know what's right or wrong, don't know what's good and what's bad? And a lot of people today have no sense of judging what is good and bad. In our uh, society today, as far as the morals are concerned, some person will say, what's wrong with that? When the 
true. The child of God can look at it and see it's wicked and sinful, and they'll say, what's wrong with that? Have you ever heard those exclamations from certain individuals today? They say they can do as they please. And uh, uh, the strong drink makes people uh, that way. That put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe to them that are mighty to drink wine. In other words, the men of, of governors and rulers and leaders to drink wine, and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. So we could go on and on. And Isaiah had already spoken of these things. There was a government official in Washington, D.C. that said we have three parties in this city. He said we have the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and the Cocktail Party. And that's about the three that they have. And indeed, Washington, D.C. ranks high on the list of cities that are noted for alcoholic consumption. And many people do not realize that alcohol and and what alcohol and nicotine do. America's favorite legal narcotics do far more damage than all the illegal drugs combined. America's legal, you get that? Legal narcotics. According to Dr. Arnold Washington... Alcohol and nicotine, and this was a, a statistics in uh, 1989, and if you can figure how many times it's exaggerated since 89, according to him, he said alcohol and nicotine kill 450,000 people annually. Now listen, while illegal drugs kill about 6,000. That was in that day. The two legal drugs kill 450,000, nearly a half million people, while illegal drugs kill about 6,000. Of course, we know that's multiplied many times and changed, changed somewhat, but that's the way it was then. And this does not make illegal drugs acceptable, but it does help put things in their perspective. And what hope is there for our affluent, pleasure-loving society that gives lip service to religion and ignores the tragic consequences Consequences of sin and the judgment is that is sure to come. What hope is there? You know, Samaria, Ephraim was, of course, the capital. Uh, Samaria was proud of her beauty, but that beauty was fading like a cut flower that could never stand before the tempest that was coming. And God was sending a storm across the land, and their proud city would be destroyed by wind and rain and hail and flood of the Assyrian army that was coming. Conquering Samaria would be as easy as plucking a fig from a tree. He states that later on. We come on down to verse 5. And on the day of judgment, Samaria would learn that it's too late, that Jehovah, not Samaria, is the crown of glory and the diadem of beauty, that God is the one there to look to, and He's the God of justice. Perhaps the people of Judah rejoiced to hear that Isaiah announced the fall of their rival kingdom But their celebration was short-lived because the prophet Isaiah also announced that Judah was guilty of the same sins as Samaria and therefore was in danger of judgment as well as Samaria was. We'll find later on when we read on down that the priests and the prophets were also responsible. Let's take it verse by verse when we begin with verse 1 again. It says, Woe to the crown pride of crown of pride to the drunkards of Ephraim whose glorious beauty is a fading flower which are on the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine. 
Behold, the Lord hath a mighty and strong one. You know who the Lord had as a mighty and strong one? The Assyrians would come in and attack Samaria, and the Lord had established them to punish His people, to punish Israel. We find it time and time again in the Old Testament where God used surrounding nations and even wicked nations to punish His own people because of their pride and their arrogance, because of the fact that they would not look to God and they begin to think that they were independent of everything else. And it says that he would come in, verse 2, Behold, the Lord had a mighty and strong one, which is a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, as a flood of mighty waters overflowing shall cast down to the earth to the earth with the hand. He's going to come in just like that. It says, The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, shall be trodden under feet. This, this flood of the Assyrian army would attack and come in and just trod them under feet. And as the and the glorious beauty, verse four, which is on the head of the fat valley, shall be a fading flower, and as a hasty fruit before the summer. The early figs ripen in June, and the last ones in in August. But it says as the hasty fruit, the early fruit before the summer, which when he that looketh upon it seeth, while it is yet in his hand, he eateth it up. In other words, the judgment would be early upon Israel. And it says in verse 5, In that day shall the Lord of hosts be for a crown of glory and for a diadem of beauty under the residue of his people. Instead of them accepting God and God's kingship over Israel was not lost, but instead of them accepting that, they were looking to their own strength and power. In verse 6, And for a spirit of judgment to him that sitteth in judgment, and for strength to them that turn the battle to the gate. Verse uh, 7 says, But they also have erred through wine. Erred. They've missed the mark. And through strong drink. Well, if you go where Randy and I go sometime and visit those that are addicted to drugs or to wine and strong drink, to alcohol, you find out that it's so much true that it says, but they also have erred through wine and through strong drink. We have drunk priests and prophets that could not perform their duties. Look at the next statement. And are out of, are out of the way. It says, the priest and the prophets, the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. They could not do their jobs. They could not... Uh, do their dutiful work. We have people today that's in, a place, in places of responsibility and example that certainly are not good examples. Beloved, uh, not only does God expect more of preachers and of those that are His witnesses and His children, but the world expects more. People out on the outside the very first thing they do is hold a preacher and the church to the very highest standard uh, in every respect. And you just make one little blunder and you see where you end up. And I'm talking about something that ordinarily all of society gets by with and, and people think nothing of. But you just let you or I do it and see what kind of testimony we have. The priests and the prophets who should have been examples to the people were staggering around drunk. 
around the city. And their counsel to the people did not come from the Spirit of God, but from their own drunken delusions. You know, no wonder Paul says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but what? Be filled with the Spirit. He says, Don't be drunk or intoxicated with wine, but be intoxicated. Be so, in contrast to that, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's what God's people are to be. They not only, these priests not only swallowed wine, but they swallowed up, they were swallowed up with wine. There's a Japanese proverb that says this, First a man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, and then the drink takes the man. That's the progress it makes. But you know, pride and drunkenness were not Judah's only sins. They also mocked God's prophet and rejected God's words. And in the next section, we're going to see that that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 9. Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from milk and draw from the breast. For precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept. Line upon line. Line upon line. Here a little and there a little. For with stammering lips lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. The stammering lips. Soon God would speak to Israel through the unintelligible language of the Assyrian conquerors. And they couldn't understand. By the way, Paul quotes that concerning the speaking in tongues in the New Testament and says that the tongues are a sign of rebuke to the unbeliever. So we find that uh, here, these people, it says here a little and there a little. Precept upon precept. It's as if they're saying, he just says it over and over again. You ever seen people like that? I heard that before. He preached that same thing two weeks ago. Or he, he's harping on the same old line. But God's Word is to be line on line. We'll find on down where it says something about it. Look at in verse 12. It says, To whom he said, This is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing. Yet they would not hear. They would not hear. But the word of the Lord was unto them, precept upon precept. Precept upon precept. Notice it's repeating this. I'm not repeating it. God's word is repeating it. If you have your Bible open. And then it says, line upon line. Line upon line. It says, here a little and there a little. That they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Wherefore the word of the Lord... uh, Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, ye scornful men that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. You see, they were so fed up with hearing the word of God. How many people have you ever heard say, Now, don't preach to me. Brother, that's what you need, some preaching. They say, don't preach to me. Society today often takes a similar attitude toward God's servants and God's word. People are so intoxicated by their intellectual pride that they laugh at the simple message of the gospel. They don't want to hear that. The prophet Amos was ejected from the king's chapel because he was a simple farmer and not a member of the religious elite. Remember, he says, I was a herdman and a gatherer of a sycamore fruit. Uh, Actually, that's a wild fig and you had to puncture the figs with a stick before that they little pointed stick before they would ripen. And he when he said a gatherer of sycamore fruit, he meant that he would have to go out and cultivate by doing this in order that they would they would ripen. Amos 
And he says, I was not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But he said, the Lord took me. He says, I was a herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And it's said of evangelist D.L. Moody that he was often laughed at because his speech was not polished. But God used him to bring many thousands to Jesus. But his speech was not polished. I heard one professor one time say, if you have to stammer and stutter a little bit, it doesn't matter if God can use it. Sometimes we don't have the smooth... You know, a fellow can have the smoothest sermon and every word outlined and every uh, paragraph fixed and every point put down. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't give him some additional and take that word and use it of his own will and the Holy Spirit's guidance, then sometimes it amounts to very little. It's pretty dry, isn't it? But if God is in it, He can take the same word that is that is left and used as God would have it used, and it will be a blessing. What was Isaiah's to this answer to this superficial crowd of religious drunks? He was saying, if you will not listen to my simple speech in your own language, God will give you a language you don't understand and He'll get the message through to you though you won't even understand what's going on. He'll send the army of Assyria whose language is foreign to you, but they would come in and they would teach them a lesson nevertheless because the Assyrian army would invade them and they'd learn what God wanted them to learn. And this leads to Isaiah's third announcement to the people. And that is an announcement that God offers them rest. Let's begin reading verse 14. Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, ye scornful men that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. Because ye have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with hell are we at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. You see what they were doing? They were making lies their refuge. They made a covenant with death rather than with God. And God shows them their only hope. And in verse 16, we have the hope of Israel in the promise of the Messiah. It says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, this is prophetic of Christ, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Look at that verse. It's used at least twice over in the New Testament, or three, three times, I might say, or four, maybe. But it's used in the New Testament concerning Jesus. And what does God say in this verse? That instead of their rest and their peace being in a refuge of lies, and the covenant they had made with death and with hell, an agreement, verse 15, in the last part of verse 15, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. In other words, they were not trusting in God. But he says, here's the one, here's the way you're to trust, and the one in whom you're to trust. If we examine that verse carefully, look at it, verse 16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation. Who's that foundation? Jesus. Remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, Verse 11, other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. There can be no other foundation. And then what is it? He is, behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone. A stone is a rock. 
Remember that Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He said, I say unto thee, Peter, a little small rock, that upon this rock I will upon this rock I will build my church. He said, I say unto thee that thou art Peter, thou art a little stone. And then he uses a different word when he says, But upon this rock, and he refers to himself, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see, the church was not built upon Peter. And the church was not built upon Peter's confession, though it's, a, it's necessary to make confession. But the church was, is built upon the person of Jesus Christ. He is the foundation stone. He is the rock. And that's why the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If the church was built upon Peter, a little small pebble, it wouldn't be very sturdy, would it? And substantial. If the church was built upon Peter's confession, then you don't have... Uh, too much strength in that because only some make professions as that of Peter. But then if the church is built upon Christ, it has a firm foundation. The rock. Jesus Christ. And he uses a great massive rock. We say like the rock of Gibraltar. And then notice he says a tried stone. Not only a foundation and a stone, but a tried stone. Now, Jesus is that stone that was tested and tried by every, by men and by devils. Do you remember that men, Jesus said concerning men, which of you convinces me of sin? Uh, Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. No one could point to Jesus and say, you have sinned. They could point to you and I and say, they accused him of things. They said he's blasphemed, but they couldn't prove it. But, None could convince him of sin. He says, The prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. And even in the great temptation in Matthew chapter 4, and Luke 4, by the way, those two passages give you the temptation. Verses 1 through 11. And what does it say concerning Satan? That he tried and tested him after 40 days, Jesus being hungry? What? He said, Turn these stones into bread, if thou be the Son of God. And Jesus met that temptation with what? It is written. The Word of God. He met that temptation. He says, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. Remember, he was told to jump off the pinnacle of the temple. And what did Jesus say? He says, It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. The devil says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. As he was up on this high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world. If you'll fall down and worship me. He said, it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. By the way, you never have it in the reverse order either. It doesn't say, Thou shalt serve the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou worship. It's always, Thou shalt worship. We can only serve God as we put Him first and worship God. He has to have our heart before He has to have our hand. He has to have a heart before He has our head. So, He wants us to love Him. And we serve every service that a child of God has. Sometimes we need to check up on this too. Should be out of love for the Lord. That's what, that's what keeps a preacher preaching for years. That's what keeps you as a child of God living a Christian life. Is love and serving God. That's why you're here in this church tonight, most likely. Is because you love the Lord. And that's what should keep us going. But Jesus was that tried stone, wasn't He? And He overcame. 
And not only that, it says a precious cornerstone. Remember? He's the precious cornerstone. We had one reference to it this morning, I think, in our Sunday school lesson. There's another reference in Matthew. There's, there's uh, one in First Peter. And there's one also in uh, the book of Romans. You find it over and over again. Some aspect of this verse of Scripture is given. But in First Peter chapter 2, let me read this for you. It says, If so be, verse 3, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God. In other words, he was refused uh, by men. We read this morning in the book of Acts where that this is the stone which you builders rejected, and he's become the head of the corner. So it's disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God. Verse 5 says, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood. So Christians, children of God, are living stones built up a spiritual house, and we're a holy priesthood. I like that. We talk about priesthood today, and we think of preachers. And there's some churches that are making what they call uh, women priests. But my question is not whether you should have women priests or not. Should you have men priests? Because we're all priests before God. So don't worry about that one way or the other. It's not discrimination at all because every, every believer is a priest in the sight of God. Because he says we're built up a holy priesthood. Now look. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Every Christian offers up spiritual sacrifices. Going down, and I'm going to have to backtrack. I started on the, because this speaks of the one he laid in Zion and the foundation, but I want to carry that thought of priesthood on again because it says, uh, in verse 7, unto you therefore which believe he is precious. So it's the believers that are in view. Now then, on down in verse 9, those believers, he says of the believers, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The praises, also the virtues it means, as well as praises. Of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you have a marginal reference, it says virtues. So we ought to live like those people that belong to a priestly family. That's Christians. That's every child of God. You say, I'm going to the priest. Well, who are you going to? I'd go to Brother Jim, Brother Beatty, uh, one of the ladies of the church. They're all, well, they're all priests in the sight of God. Everyone that can go into God's presence by the virtue of Christ. See, that's where we are. Every believer, every Christian, every child of God. But back to the point of the one who is laid in Zion for a foundation, this same passage of Scripture, we, we skipped over it. Verse 6 says, Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, and he's, Peter's referring back to the very Scripture in Isaiah 28, is it verse 16 or 18? 16, isn't it? I'll have to turn back. Verse 16. And he's referring back to that very verse of Scripture. And in 1 Peter 2, verse 6, he says, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Shall not be confounded. The word means a lot of things. Uh, Paul in the book of Romans says, Whosoever believes him shall not be ashamed. 
In the book of Isaiah it says, shall not make haste. Put these three together. Shall not make haste, shall not be confounded, shall not be ashamed. It really means, back in Isaiah 28.16, He who comes to God through Christ for salvation shall never be confounded. He shall not haste to flee away to someone else or for some other purpose because he'll find the salvation he needs. He shall not be disappointed. No enemy shall harm him. So, just to use the word simply and say, like you read it in Romans or you read it in Peter or you read it in Isaiah, you have to put all three together to see what the prophet is really speaking about. You come to Christ for salvation, you're not going to be disappointed. You're not going to be confused or confounded. You will not have to make haste or run away to someone else because you found the only one in whom you may put your faith. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, Jesus said. So you have found that perfect rest. And that rest was promised to Israel of old and is promised to you and I because this is the promise, Isaiah 28, verse 16, of the Messiah that was to come. And in Him all of these things would find a way of joining together. A harmonious whole, we might say, and a fulfillment. So, we find that He was the sure foundation. He was the stone, the rock. He's the tried stone. He's the precious cornerstone for believers to trust in. And we have all these references. I'll give you the references. 1 Corinthians 3.11, the sure foundation. The stone, the rock, Matthew 16.18, he says, On this rock I'll build my church. The tried stone, Matthew 4, the great temptation, verses 1-11. through 11. The precious cornerstone, 1 Peter 2, verse 7. And we have it other places in the New Testament. Those are basic. But then, what do we have? In verse 17, you have Isaiah 28:17. Judgment also will I lay to the lion, and righteousness to the plummet. And the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the water shall overflow the hiding place, and your covenant with death shall be disannulled. God says, what you're trusting in, He told Israel what they were trusting in, they could not trust. And your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then shall you be trodden down by it. He gave them the only perfect rest and sure rest. And He said He's going to set the standard of judgment, the standard of righteousness that will stand in judgment. In verse 17, judgment also will I lay to the line. You know, Hosea, and especially Amos, said there was a plumb line. Amos says there's a plumb line. God put the plumb line down to see if the wall was straight. And He put a line upon the wall to see if it was straight. You know, God has a way of wanting, wanting things in order. And when He found His people were like this, out of line, or when the wall was not straight of their defense, He says, you, you have not... Uh, met the standard that God wants. And here it says, Judgment also will I lay to the line. You see, we have judgment today that's wavering. It wavers with politics, with men's influence, with money, with various other ways. But he says, I'm going to lay judgment to the line. It's going to meet God's standards. It will measure up or it won't measure up. There's not going to be any two ways about it. It's either good or bad. It either has a crook in it or it's a straight wall. You and I are people that have 
done some building know what it is to use. Uh, well, I say we do. Some people don't know what a level is. I worked on some old houses up here in Rio Dosa, and you think they didn't have a level nor a square. They just stuck a board up and nailed a board to it. And, you know, if they got a wall up, it didn't make any difference. There's 22 feet at the top and 21 feet at the bottom. It was still a house or vice versa. But anyway, God says he wants it done right. And look, the hail and the waters of God's wrath would sweep away this refuge of lies. He says the water shall overflow their hiding place. Look at verse 17. The hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies. By the way, if you're not standing true and standing upon the solid rock and found the rest in Christ who is the, the Savior and the one you're to look to, all the, the lies and all the hope that you build upon the sand will be swept away when the flood comes. Jesus said that a man, a wise man builds his house upon the, uh, upon the rock, doesn't he? But the other one builds his hand, house upon the, uh, the sand. And he says, when the flood came and the winds blew, it says it was swept away and it was lost. And great was the loss of it. And he says, that's the people that hear his word and obey it. Obedience to the word of God. And he says, the man that hears his word and obeys his word is like the man that builds his house upon the rock. And that's the kind of people we want to be. We have the rock. We have the foundation. We have the hiding place. And it's not a refuge of lies. It's the person of Christ. We'll have to hurry. I want to give you the rest of this quickly as I can. And then, anyway, verse 17, well, verse um, 18 says, Your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then shall you be trodden down by it. From the time that it goeth forth, it shall take you. For morning by morning shall it pass over, day by day, uh, for, uh, by day and by night. And it shall be a vexation only to the to understand the report. Now look, uh, verse 20. I like this verse. For the bed is shorter than a man can stretch himself on it, and the covering narrower than he can wrap himself in it. A bed is too short and the cover's too narrow. Have you ever been in that situation? I mean, when you're trusting in a refuge of lies, you're lying on a bed that's too short and the cover's too narrow. You ever start to tug at the covers and there's nothing on the other side? You ever had to sleep on a bed that was too short? A sofa or something visiting somebody or maybe uh, in certain situations in your life? Very uncomfortable, isn't it? The bed's too short and the covers are too narrow. Sometimes that can happen when the wife pulls all the covers or vice versa. Covers are too narrow. Do that thing that is best and give her some of the covers and give him some of the covers. Okay? Verse 21, For the Lord shall rise up as in Mount Perizim, he's referring to another time, he shall be wroth as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his strange work, look at this, and bring to pass his act, his strange act. What was God going to do? God's judgment is strange work. And God would judge His own people and chastise His own people. It's not God's work of pleasure when He has to do this. It's His strange work. But God will do it if necessary. The Bible says, Whom the Lord loveth, He what? Chasteneth. Sometimes we wonder why God chastens us. Because He loves us. That's the only reason. 
For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. It says, if you be without chastening, you're not sons. You're bastards, illegitimate children. And it says, now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. But afterward it yieldeth that peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. Hebrews 12, you study that. It doesn't seem to be joyous when it's happening, but grievous. But afterward, what does it do? It yields that peaceable fruit of righteousness. Now, to whom? To everyone? No, to those that are exercised thereby. You have a child and you correct that child. And if they take that correction, then it brings about a good relationship and a peaceable fruit of righteousness. But if that child in turn just as soon as you chasten that child and correct that child, go off and when mother or dad's in the other room and they say, I'm not going to do a thing they said. Or if you had to give them a spanking and they they just uh, get mad about it and go off in the corner and just get mad instead of saying they really needed to be corrected. Unto those that are exercised thereby. Some people, even God's people, are not exercised thereby. When God chastens, they still rebel against God's Word. You know, God can get our attention, but to get us to listen and to obey is a different thing. And sometimes it's our own rebellion that brings about our sufferings afterward instead of the joyous and fruitful and peaceable fruit of righteousness. Let's hurry on. We have just a little bit. I've kept you five after, but let me give you this and we'll quit. It says in verse 22, and by the way, he begins to show uh, God's, uh, God intends to produce righteousness from His people through particular judgments that He's about to mention. Now, let's read this. Verse 22, Now therefore, be ye not mockers, lest your uh, bands be made strong. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a consumption even determined upon the whole earth. Give ear and hear my voice. Hearken and hear my speech. Doth the plowman plow all day to sow? Doth he open the open and break the clods of his ground? When he hath made a plain the face thereof, doth he not cast abroad the fitches and scatter the cumin and cast in principal wheat uh, and the appointed barley and the rye in their place? For God doth instruct him to discretion and doth teach him. For the fitches, these are fennel flour from its pungency, are not threshed with the threshing instruments, neither is a cart wheel turned about upon the coming, the threshing sledge. But the fitches are beaten out with a staff and the coming with a rod. Bread, corn is bruised because he will not, he will not ever be threshing it nor break it with the wheel of his cart, nor bruise it with his horsemen. This also cometh forth from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. So God says in these last verses that he intended to produce righteousness in his people, and he uses these particular judgments to bring it about. And you know, God is going to correct us one way or another. He got, to, he got Israel's attention, and he can get our attention. And it's best. Wouldn't it be best if they would have consecrated on what he said in verse 16? Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. 
if they had concentrated on that one verse of rest and peace and stability and enjoyment. And the New Testament says the same thing. He that believeth on Him shall not be ashamed. He that believeth on Him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, Peter says, He is precious. There's the answer. But they didn't listen to the answer. God had to bring the other judgments. 